Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, sis, are you FaceTiming me from HomeSense again? Saving money? That's my jam. What do we think? Outdoor dining set or wicker lounge set? Since your signature dish is a margarita, go with lounge. Okay, I am so ready for this party. It's been too long. Wait, go back. Show me those pretty ceramic plates. They're melamine. Even you can't break them. Look, these cute cushions match my shirt. Is that my shirt? Outfit your outdoors. Have it today at HomeSense. Standout pieces. Outstanding prices.
Welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is Sunday, April 3rd. You know, we're getting back into the swing of things here. After being off the air for like a year and a half when I started semi-retired, we kept things quiet the last two months with one guest a week. But we're back to our two guests a week, at least for the rest of April. And tonight we got some great ones. Billy Graziati from Biohazard and Billy Bio and Don Versailles from Platinum. We'll be talking to both of those guys tonight. Uh, I think we'll believe we're talking to Don in about a half hour and uh, Billy in the second half of the show. Right there, except with Son of a Bitch, I could dedicate that song to a lot of people this week, <laughs> but we won't name names. All right, you know, about four or five years ago, Udo put the Dirk Schneider band together, said he was going to go out on one final tour, like just playing all the classic set music, and then he was putting the set behind him, he was just going to concentrate on the Udo stuff, and obviously that didn't happen, because once the tour was over, there was another one, then festivals, then he said, well, you know... I'm doing my Udo shows now, but people still want to hear accepts. So I'm still, I'm still doing it. So it was a kind of a cash grab, I guess, and and it worked because I was at the show when he played at the Gravity Theater. I have to be honest with you, he sounded great. You know, he really did. Even though I, I do like the new accept with Mark on vocals because he sings very reminiscent of Udo. It is a different sounding band. I mean, musically, you have Wolf writing the song, so that kind of keeps us, you know, consistent with the old stuff. But Udo was the voice of the band, and it really shows when you see him live. So. Teacher's own, I guess, right? All right, we're going to keep the music going here for the next 15 minutes or so, and then we will get Don on the line. How about we do uh, some Sacred Rite, the Blade?
always growing in the tooth of the dog is ringing in the blood on the walls is running slow the children are hiding cause they all
off that set with Talon. No, actually it was Sacred Ripe. I think I announced that already. The Blade, then Talon, Midnight Bull, Mercy, Judgment Day, and right there, Alien with Cosmic Fantasy. I reached out to Roxanne from that band about coming on the show about four or five years ago, uh, but she was taking care of a sick family member and just didn't have the time to do it. I want to reach out to her again, but I'm like, what do I say? Like, did they pass away or you're not taking care of them anymore? Can you come on the show? I don't know, but I am going to reach out again because I loved Alien. They only had that one EP out back in 83, I believe, but they were a great New York band. The bass player and the singer passed away over the last 20 years, but they were a solid act back in the day. I tell you what, we didn't do a lot of chit-chat in the first half of the show because we kept to the music. So I'm going to play some platinum right now, bring Don on the line. We'll get that interview going. So how about we do it till death do us part?
I mean, that's not some great stuff. Let's get Don on the line. Hopefully, we have more luck connecting this week than we did last week with the guys from Frightmare. Let's give it a shot. Good evening. Don, this is Mike. How are you? You're on the air. Mike, how are you, baby? What's going I'm on? I'm doing great, and I'm even happy that I get to talk to you because you know, I was a Platinum fan from back in the 80s, so you know, I love that, that these albums were re-released and the lost material was found and put out there. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a hell of a ride, i got to tell you. <laughs> For the last two years now, it has been absolutely freaking awesome. Uh, I'm happy to hear that, and we'll get into maybe what we could do with the band later on, but let's kind of go back to the beginning, because, you know, I was there in a part of that scene in the day, but a lot of people are new to metal, and they don't know all the older bands that were around back then, and so, you know, how did Platinum come about, basically? Platinum came about, um, Platinum was my baby, my project, so basically my history ties right into that, so, you know, mine, we'll go back a little, about a year and a half before Platinum. Um, I was in a band. I was actually, you're familiar with Hades? Yeah, you I were was, the original uh, drummer. I was the original drummer with Dan when we were still doing copy tunes in my basement. Actually, all the bands, including Platinum, was everything was based out of our basement recording slash rehearsal studio. Yeah. Now, playing with Dan out of high school, I then, <laughs> a guitarist actually came to uh, audition for a second spot for Hades. But what it actually was was a guitarist trying to steal a drummer for his own band. Ah. <laughs> and that guitar, that guitarist's name was Marco Castelluccio. Marco's brother plays Fury on the Sopranos. That's, that's right. How we hooked up with. That's how we hooked up with uh, Federico Castelluccio. So, long story short, um, I started playing with them. We renamed the band Savage. Savage. We then auditioned new lead singers. And our lead singer was a young gentleman from Cliffside Park. Now, I was a babe. I was 18 at the time. These guys were all four or five years older than me, but that singer was Ray Gillen, yeah. you know, future of Black Sabbath and uh, Badlands and so. Yep. And then we're doing that. We were doing the whole circuit, the hole in wall, the soap factory, you know, all the classics back in the day. And then a band by the name of S.S. Steel. Uh, front, the guitarist, a uh, gentleman by the name of Steve Mazza, a, still a legend to this day. He was touring with Ted Poley up until uh, recently, very recently. And it was just this whole little click between Trickster, us, that whole, you know, North Jersey metal scene. Long story short, S.S. Steele played the Soap Factory every Sunday night. So that was, a, that was the be-all end-all for us back there in the day, playing the Soap Factory. It was renowned because they were on TV down in the disco era days, every Sunday night at the Soap Factory Disco. Yeah. Do you remember that, Mike? I sure do. And, yep, and basically, so I leave Savage and Ray and all those guys to go to SS Steel. And, yeah, we all stayed really, really good friends. Ray came to see us. He was like, oh, you SOB. You know, he was a neighborhood guy, too. And, you know, now I'm playing the Soap Factory. Long story short, we auditioned new singers for SS Steel. And I meet uh, a lead singer by the name of Vince Gervino, who was playing a band uh, called Prey at the time. He becomes our singer. Then we also hire a new bass player. And what basically happened is uh, we just musically wanted to do two different things. Um, 
I wanted to do a little more. I wanted to be a heavy band, but I wanted it to be theatrical. You know, I grew up on Kiss and yeah. things like that. I wanted heavy, but I wanted a show. And the singer was, Vince Trevino was the same way. He was idol was Rob Halford. You know, he has four octave range, you know, super highs, operatic voice. And he goes, let's just do our own thing. So SS Steel split in half. And Vince and I formed Platinum. We took a bass player with us by the name of Bob Shiner. And off we went. Our first gig was back in 83. With uh, We warmed up at the Soap Factory, actually, with Profit. And that's when we almost burned down the airplane room at the Soap Factory. Do you remember the, the lower room at the Soap Factory with the big airplane hanging from the ceiling? Yes, I do. Yes, absolutely. Well, we, all, we pretty much caught it on fire because <laughs> our, uh, our pyrotech guys... The stuff we used to get away with, you know, the stuff that killed those poor guys, you know, with uh, with Great White. I mean, we used to just take huge coffee cans, fill them up with black powder and just make these flame tubes 30, 40 feet high, hit the ceiling, turn into a mushroom cloud. A lot of, you know, a lot of spectacle, put it that way. But anyway, long story short, so we, uh, Vince and I uh, did all the songwriting and we just started writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And we were just slugging it out. We had two choices, Mike. People either going to L.A. and getting signed almost off the bus, or you slugged it out in the New York tri-state area where, for people of you know, my age group anyway, club owners wanted copy tunes. They wanted the crowd, you know, they wanted you playing Aerosmith and ACDC and Sabbath and Zeppelin. They, if you had originals, you had to kind of sneak them in there along with your set, same way Twisted Sister did back in the day because we used to warm up for them all the time as well. and But we started just slugging away, slugging away. And uh, what happened was we did a uh, did about three uh, self-released EPs. And we started just putting them out everywhere, sending it to every fanzine, every magazine on the planet. And one thing led to another, Rising Sun Productions out of uh, Hamburg, Germany, uh, contacted us, and because of a really, really uh, great article that uh, the review of our demo uh, in Metal Hammer magazine, Germany, and side to side unseen, came over, saw us live, and at the time we were playing somewhere up, uh, I think like Saratoga Winters up in upstate New York, and. Uh, the gentleman who owned Chalet Studios, a recording studio outside of Toronto, about 40 miles outside of Toronto, it was the pre-production studio for Rush. And they came down and pitched us doing our album there. And we all just kind of hit it off really well. Labels like, you guys want to go? Let's go. Let's do it. And it was this recording studio, Mike, on the top of a mountain. Wow. You know, in Canada in the winter. And it was just a, a, a sprawling ranch. And there was like the Neil Pert room, which I got. And, you know, just everybody. And you see, it was, it was almost as if Rush still kept like their toothbrushes there because they did almost all their pre-production there. Yeah. And then they would do their finals in another studio. Um, I can't remember where. But we went up there. It was just get away from it all and just record. One side of the house was just this beautiful studio. And then they had, you know, billiard room place just everybody hang and chill and it was a great experience we went up uh before christmas that year and uh laid down basic tracks 
came home for the holidays, went back up, did vocals. I flew up uh, Ed Furman, the lead guitarist for Hades, because I had him, I asked him to do a, uh, a guest solo on one of the tracks called Blind Lead the Blind off of Iceman. And flew him up after the holidays, and he, uh, he did a great, great job on that track. Great job. And um, that, was, uh, that was the start. We kept going and going and going. And simultaneously, by the way, my, uh, my family was also in the jingle business. We did music for TV commercials and film and all that. So I was also producing uh, for television, too, at the same time. And long story short, we uh, were getting ready to do a next release for Rising Sun. And uh, David Sonnenberg who was, uh, he was the manager. His first project was Meatloaf. He launched Meatloaf okay, and Soraya yeah. and, and the Spin Doctors. Well, he, uh, he was negotiating with Atlantic to get Platinum signed uh, here with that. And then he said, just let's wait a few more months because I have to launch the spin, this band called the Spin Doctors. You've never heard of them, but in six months you will, everyone will, which of course he was, was right. <laughs> he was spot on. He was right. And long story short, uh, everything's going good, and you know we've been paying our dues. You know, we sold. You know, we sold well. We got to. You know, we tour Europe. We're 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 doing a little bit of everything. You know, really cutting our teeth. And then, uh, unfortunately, a band called Nirvana comes out, and uh, <laughs> within a couple of months, every A uh, and R guy and every label, major label, said, "Okay, we're done signing metal bands. Go to Seattle, get us some grunge bands." And the story. And that's what basically shut the band down, like in 92, 93, that time period, where I went back to just doing uh, production. You know, I was on TV every day. Music was playing out of millions of speakers every day. My, either my music, my voice, my voiceovers, whatever we were doing. But, you know, it's music nobody cared who did it or why, but it was out there. So. Yeah, no, that's a good thing. Though. Yeah. Well, I mean... Good you kind of like encompassed the entire history of the band right there for me. So I got nothing else to ask you, so I'm going to end the interview. No, I'm just kidding around. Uh, but, you know, when, when all that came about towards the end, yeah, grunge did put the hammer down and, and killed a lot of stuff. But earlier you said, you know, like, we had a really good scene here in New York and New Jersey in the, in the 80s. You know, it really helped for a lot of the underground bands that couldn't get to the biggest stage or get to the next level. At least we didn't think they would. Nobody thought Metallica and, and, and Slayer and heavy bands like that were ever going to go anywhere back then, you know, but they, they right. did. So do you think, you know, if you went to L.A., maybe the outcome would have been different because you would have had more years out there in the scene, you know, establishing the band and getting signed to one of the labels and maybe working your way up to the majors? Uh, I mean, uh, can you repeat that, Mike? Uh, if we went to L.A., is that what you said? Yeah, early on you well, said you know you had the choice. Like we either go to L.A. and we can get yeah, signed you know, by honestly, right away. Honestly, yeah. If we went, if we just packed up, went to L.A. in '83, '84, uh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt we would have we would have a deal within a year of getting there, without a doubt. Uh, there was there, we were writing some really really good material, uh, even to the point where. Um, Jeremy Golden from Heaven and Hell Records that uh, that signed us uh, two years ago. We we're, we're, we found more unreleased stuff just in the past ninety days. Wow! And we we have, we have we have another album and a half worth of music that we never released that was all written like eighty three to eighty five, and it was it was really good stuff. There's a half uh, Vince Gervino and I. 
uh, there's there's a couple of songs that we forgot we wrote, which reminds me of this story. I was um, last song, um, Aerosmith Toys in the Attic, uh, the last track on on the, on side B. I can't remember the name of it. Um, um, baby, I'm a dreamer. I'm, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. But long story short, uh, there, there, Perry and Tyler were hanging out at a radio station, and Tyler heard this song. He was like, "Joe, we should copy this. This we would we would kill this song." <laughs> so Perry goes, "Hey, you know, blanket, you blanket. I don't know if I can curse on this or not. Sure, but you can." He goes, "He goes, you fucking dumbass. It's us." <laughs> And, and I, it was one of those uh, moments for Vince and I. It was like, oh, my God, I forgot these songs. Is this it? And they were really, really, really good. But to answer your question, absolutely. But, you know, everybody here was still connected in a lot of other things. But, I mean, this area, there was, a, there was, still, a lot of, there was still a lot of action. Um, there was a famous club in Bergenfield um, called the Circus Nightclub. And the owner uh, was a gentleman by the name of Rick Bandazian. And he actually published a book about five years ago. It was called Rock and Roll Meltdown, the Circus Nightclub Story, 1979-83. And it was a really, really good read. Um, they interviewed me for that. And uh, there's a two-page story. Because somebody contacted me and said, hey, um, did you ever play the circus? Because that had a real reputation for launching new bands and as a stairway down <laughs> for larger bands that were kind of going the opposite direction. Yeah. And I said, yeah, actually, um, we, we played there back in 80, uh, back in 82, 83, around then. And we told the story and they liked it and they printed it. What happened was we warmed up to the Joe Perry project right around the time uh, when um, they split, Joe Perry split from Aerosmith. Then Lightning Strikes, the song by Aerosmith comes out. Yeah. Aerosmith's back playing arenas. Perry's making 600 bucks more a night than we are sharing a dressing room with him and uh, there was just some interesting stories going on with that because uh, he still had big arena uh, rock star demands down to uh, brand new aluminum garbage pails filled with Budweiser mirrors, three foot lines of coke, a uh, piece of hash the size of my fist oh my and God. they were very very gracious as we're basically you know, you go through a kitchen into a basement with a locker room that looks like, you know, one of your friend's basements, and you're hanging out with Joe Perry, who three years earlier, you know, you're a high school kid checking out at the garden. That was a very, very, very interesting vibe, and a lot of good bands went through there, both on the way up and down. And um, there's a lot of stories of that all throughout the whole tri-state area, from the old clubs like Sundance, um, Hole in Wall, Soap Factory, L'Amour, um, you know, on and on and on. I mean, we had a really interesting scene. The whole reason that book I'm talking about, Mike, came out is that this is what younger people nowadays, I mean, everywhere, especially around here, they don't realize that you go back, make, pick a year, 81, 82, 83, 85, you could go out any night of the week, yeah, including a sun and see live music. Yep, that's the way it was. I mean, yeah, the young people now, they'd be like, huh? I mean, they really, they couldn't even imagine. And it, it was everywhere. I mean, there was a club, you know, I, I lived down the New Jersey Shore. Now you had the Fountain Casino, you had the Stone Pony. You had, I mean, everywhere you go, there was a nightclub within 
20 minutes where you can go see live music any night of the week. That's true, and that was and a great time. Style, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can see everything out there. But, you know, when you talk about Platinum, I mean, to me, you guys had the whole package. You had the looks, you had the music, you had the stage show. You know, now you say you're out in L.A., you think you would have gotten signed within a year. Do you think Platinum would still be here today performing live? As is, if, <laughs> it's a it's a big it's a big question. But do you think you guys would have survived why, 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 the nineties, Mike? I don't know if we would have survived. I'm talking about just because a lot of you know, remember a lot of guys we knew back in the day. Remember, it's one of these industries where everybody knows everybody, you know. And yeah. you know, like like the, the lead singer uh, Vince Trevino. Let me give everybody a shout out. You know, Mike Mike Paradisis was the main platinum bass player throughout, or you know glory days uh, Dean Ferriola on guitar lead guitarist we went through a bunch if you ever saw Spinal Tap we go through lead guitarists like Spinal Tap went through drummers <laughs> but aside from that like Vince he was he was he's uh, on tour up until this past year with a band called the Wizards of Winter yeah there, that was uh, a Christmas guys, show yeah the Christmas show with Greg Smith from Nugent and some of the guys from TSO uh, Stevie Brown from Trickster on lead guitar and you know, everybody, everybody's still out there. A lot of people are still out there doing it and this and that. But um, I don't know. If, a lot of people didn't make it, Mike, because there was so much. It was an insane decade. You were there. I mean, it yeah. was. Uh, I mean, you pick a band. I mean, go down to the bands from Quiet Riot to Rat to this and that. I mean, and there's an there's somebody who didn't survive in every one of those bands, including you know from all yeah. different reasons. But a lot of it was just you know. It was just a lot. It was, uh, it was, it was a good time. It was a good time that killed them. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> yeah, but those those were the days. You know, when I look at it, was the hardest part about being in the band was that all you guys were so good looking, it was just too much to stand? <laughs> well, the, you know the funny thing? Everybody, you know, we were a bunch of like, like a bunch of chick models at times. We were busting each other's balls. <laughs> where I remember my, 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 my partner, who's the singer, right, Vince? He would turn around. I remember him just going, yo, that double chin's looking a little bad. We used to break each other's chops or getting fat. And I'm looking back, I, I had a fucking 29 inch waist. I was 148 pounds at six foot tall. And we're breaking each other's chops. Like we were <laughs> It's ridiculous. It was great, though. It was absolutely. It was good, but you know, the band always kind of got lumped in as, as a glam metal band or a hair metal band, and that was nothing of what you guys were. I mean, the image did not fit, you know, what the music was, at least back in the day. You know, I know more towards the mid-80s, more of the glam came out and everything, but you guys were completely different than your image, at least, you know, the, the look. That's what we were trying. There was, there was one, there was this great, great article that helped us get signed in the first place. Um, that was also in, the, uh, not Metal Hammer, what was it, uh, it was in Kerrang. And there was this article came out, and the uh, guy that, I forgot his name, it was a long time ago, but he did a, uh, he was reviewing the Here to Fight EP. And he, and he looked at the picture, and we were at our glammiest, shiniest, I mean, we had $8,000 worth of rhinestones on our clothes, on our instruments, and on the drum set. That's insane. I mean, yes. obviously had brain damage, but, but... He turns around, he goes, at first look, I'll be quite honest, I was reluctant to even listen to this band after seeing the photo. And then, of course, he turned around, I was, I was glad I did, because this stuff kicks ass, you gotta listen to it. Because it's the absolutely opposite of what you expect to hear when you see the visual. 
and that was the whole we were trying to go we were trying to do a blend of both because you know bands that were glam they were either poison or they were enoughs enough and and all this kind of stuff but couldn't you be still have some you know, power and balls behind it and still put on a show that was that's what we we're trying to push yeah, you know. I mean, how, how do you really? I mean, when you think about it, how do you make the picture match the music? <laughs> I mean, you know, like it says, Poison had all the makeup on. You know, so you said, okay, you know, they're not going to be playing death metal; they're going to be playing glam. You know, do you wear corduroy and, and flannel shirts or be like a grunge? Band? Is there an actual look that goes with the music? You can't like look one way for an image and have you know a different sound than music. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, we we succumbed to the pressure, Mike. Too, we did because you know by the. By the end, you know, we were, you know, we didn't really much difference than, you know, we could, we could have been in Guns N' Roses too by the end. We were in, you know, we were in black jeans and t-shirts, you know, because that's just kind of the way it was going, you know, especially by nine, you know, by, by the time the nineties came around. Yeah. Uh, yet now in hindsight, and I'm looking, we found some old footage, all our archives, like we, we used to video every show and all our archives got lost in Hurricane Sandy. And oh, then something weird. Yeah, it sucks. But something surfaced about a year and a half, two years ago. And there's a, a video for, I don't know if you saw it, there's a video for one of our songs, Living High. That's on I YouTube. I saw the clip on YouTube, yeah. And at least the fact that a, any of the footage was even, you know, handheld VCR footage was even saved was shocking. But you get the vibe. Yeah, I preferred when we were more visual. I, I look back and I'm like, we should have just kept it. What the hell? I mean, it was it was fun to watch. I mean, it was an old Gene Simmons thing. I wanted to be I wanted to be the band I would want to go see. And hey, if you go back to 1974, 75. Um, I mean, look, look at Kiss. I mean, Parasite. That's a heavy metal song. I mean, that's a that's a that's a heavy, awesome grooving track. And uh, you know, and look what they look like. You know, they, they have clown paint on. And all this other stuff. I mean, it worked. It's something you want to remember. Two types of ways. People either want to see people look like themselves, just singing them a song, or people want to go see a spectacle, a show. They want to just forget, you know, just forget their troubles for an hour and just go enjoy themselves. I mean, just see something. You know, act it out. Make it big. And, uh, you know, the same kind of power. That's why my transition to doing, like, movie trailers and movie film scores and stuff like that I mean, think about what you see a new uh, action movie uh, trailer in the theater. It's all in your face, smash, you know, pure testosterone energy and, you know, all of that. And that's, you know, that's a classic metal show. That's really, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same uh, concept from this pure in your face, you know, unbridled. You know, whatever. That's a funny thing because you know how how many genres of heavy metal do you think there are, Mike? At last got, count, the, I was at about 180. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of them, but to me, it's all rock. You know, metal, whatever. It's all this, it's just music to me. I don't really, you know, separate stuff by genre. But yeah, there's so many of them that you know people don't give other other chances, other music a chance from different genres. Like, oh, I'm not into that. But in the end, it's all rock and roll. Well, George, do I in the last few years uh, because there's you know we've done you know I did probably probably done about close to 20 interviews in the last two years since uh, Heaven and Hell came out with the re-release of Iceman and the other album Vanitas and I just noticed throughout all the different categories and you know encyclopedia 
you know, archives of all the metal bands throughout, you know, the world now. We have a moniker, and I'm, I'm actually, I am glad the word glam's not in it, because after all is said and done, where we got, you know, that slot they put us in is a U.S. power, classic U.S. power metal. Yeah. Or a classic U.S. power metal, which, all right, I'll take that. It's good enough. Well, you know, earlier you were talking about Federico, and he actually did the album cover for the Ice Man. I knew he was an artist, but I never knew that he did the album cover. Not only did he, he did both album covers. He did, oh, really? Uh, I didn't know he did both. And Vanitas. Oh, wow. Um, Vanitas, which is a, um, it's a skull, but it's uh, people look at them going, and they're, and they're not, they're not graphics. Those are oil paintings. You know, tan paintbrush. Because Federico is a, uh, he's a classic, um, like, 16th century Italian type of artist. You know, he could he could paint, he's painted things where you'd think it was, you know, painted in the 15th century in Italy. You know, like, the anatomy and saints and Jesus and all this kind of, I mean, real, unbelievable, most, he's the most talented living artist that I, that I know of. I mean, he's that good, Mike. Yeah. And he always has been. And he, um, he basically he did the first thing. I don't know if you know the story, but with the first album cover, he was supposed to paint the album cover for Badlands' first album because we were all you know friends with Ray. Yeah. So um, did you ever see the video? By the way, the oldest footage. A lot of these interviews I gave in the last couple of years is because the oldest footage that exists of Ray Gillen, and with him passing away in the early '90s, he's become even more you know revered and legendary. Well, the oldest footage for him is with me and Savage because we appeared on a uh, a live TV show called Captain Mel's Variety Show in Fort Lee, New Jersey, back in '81, and yada yada yada. But that was the whole connection with Federico. But what happened is Ray promised him the album cover when the first Badlands album comes out. Well, what happened is uh, Jakey Lee had a little more clout uh, with the decision making, is from what I figured from the way. I heard it handed down. So basically that didn't happen. It was right around the same time uh, that we got our deal. We were pretty close. And I said, that's all right, you can do ours. And the label had some budget set aside for album artwork. And so I told them what I wanted. I wanted all our faces looking like it's being pulled out of liquid metal. Almost like, um, remember, remember the movie T2? With yeah, the Terminator, metal? yeah. yeah. That, that kind of concept, but even before that. And he goes, he goes, big man, that's, uh, that's a lot of work. And, you know, I'm still a working artist. So I have to, you know, pay the mortgage and all that. He goes, that'll take me about two months to paint and cost your label like, you know, 15,000 bucks. And that's not going to happen. Yeah. So he goes, how about this? Is there anything around the studio that I've already painted that is, you know, we could kind of doctor up and make fit somehow? And I turn around and I remember he did this self portrait of himself in a, he was in a, squat position with the line looking upward yeah with a blue skin and i'm like well our title cut is called iceman i'm like hmm and by the way this is how he started growing his hair long i said here because he had like a guido italian haircut at the time <laughs> in that in that painting i said here we go paint long hair on yourself put an earring in put some shackles on your wrists throw some smoke on the bottom boom put the platinum logo up top iceman next to it boom perfect album cover let's go he goes oh i could do that i could do that in a week i go done deal awesome then when we did the re uh release obviously we kept the same album cover 
And then with the second release, which was a bunch of stuff that we recorded live uh, at SST in Weehawk in New Jersey with the famous uh, John Hanty. He's an industry legend, engineer, studio owner. Um, which the stuff came out great. It was a 24 track live recording. Um, the band, I don't think, was ever better, like tightness wise, than on that day. And almost all of Vanitas is that live recording, which is amazing because when we were going to get, by the way, I'm going off on a little tangent, but when Atlantic wanted to sign us, they wanted to, they wanted to release those songs as is and not go back in the studio with them. I'm like, wow. really? You, you guys got a sense. He goes, you have a sound going here, especially on the song called From Death to a Spark. He goes, it, it sounds like a freight train. It's, it's just, you, you capture the sound. We might do some other stuff, but some of it we want to keep as is. Just whatever you guys captured that day, it worked. I go, okay. And people are probably more budget weary back then. Who knows? But we're going to do uh, this album. And I go, all right, let's go back to the studio. What do you got on the walls here? He goes, I go, I remember you were painting. They're called, uh, a vanitas is a, a term of the type of painting you could paint back in the 14, 15, 16, 1700s when, uh, when the whole uh, reform movement of Christianity, they didn't want flashiness and all this excess pride, which is supposed to be bad you know, religiously. So what happened was that during like the whole Rembrandt days, everything was kind of, the paintings started getting really dark and everything looked kind of dreary for a while. But the way they could paint pretty things is you had to have a skull in the painting. And so you could then put anything, gold, diamonds, jewels, beautiful women, their tits hanging out, whatever you need. But as long as there's a skull there, the painting's then called a vanitas, meaning it signifies the inevitability of death and we're all going to just, you know, deteriorate and just blah. <laughs> and that was their way of getting around painting really cool things. And so that's called a vanitas. So I remember he had always been working on one in the 40 years I've known him. And I said, he goes, actually, no, not the one I'm working on now. He goes, I did one that I sold to a doctor about two years ago. That would be perfect for this album cover. And I said, okay. So there was this doctor uh, that was willing to uh, loan us the painting for the album cover. Hence, the album cover for Vanitas. It's a great painting. I mean, it he spent, is. He spent, spent over three months, he spent over three months painting that. And the shadowing and just the people really look close as opposed to somebody making a graphic when you really, you really, really look really close. You're like, damn, this is a, it's a painting. <laughs> That's just awesome. It is. Pure talent. So, so the first album cover is basically, you know, a, a semi-original cover because he, he changed it around to fit to what you want. But did you take the name of the song for the album after you saw the picture? Or was that always going to be the name of the record? That was always going to be, Iceman was going to be the name of the album. That's why. It was, it's a perfect match that, to the picture. It, Right, it's a perfect match, Mike. And the whole thing is, I wish you looked at it. You know, certain decisions people have angst over forever. This one took a half a second. I'm like, oh yeah, we could do that. Um, and he's just like, perfect. Vince said, yeah, perfect. The whole decision was made like in, in like three minutes. Done. All right, all right, let's go out and get a beer. <laughs> but isn't that the best way? Sometimes there's less to think of when you when you don't really put too much thought into it. Most of the time, it, it comes Absolutely. out pretty good. Sometimes you know you step in shit, but most of the time, it's a pretty good choice. Absolutely, and the song "Living High," which I always thought was going to be that was if we released that at the right time, that should have been a huge just encore song hit, which it actually was. Uh, but that song was written in about three minutes. Uh, <laughs> there's a ballad called "Someday" that Vince and I. 
tweaked for literally nine years before the, the album version came out and other things just happened bam they always say a good song a good idea is just there waiting for you to recognize it and a good song writes itself yeah well you know you wrote a yeah. lot of the music so uh you know, a lot of people don't associate drummers, you know, with being the music writers, unless you're like Rush and you have Neil Peart, who did mostly the lyrics, not really much of the music, but, I mean, did it come easy for you writing music? I mean, your best songs, were the ones that came out of you right away, or stuff that you really had to tinker with to get right? Um, well, I, I played, in my family growing up, I played classical, I'm a classically trained pianist since I was four years old. Oh, okay. I, actually, I played piano since I was four, I took up drums at ten, and I was also singing, but... Uh, so that came out really easy. And at the same time, even remember with Platinum, in our other business, writing for you know, TV commercials and stuff like that, you got to write on command. And the, uh, the stress of that, Mike, is incredible because you'll have a client call you up and say, okay, you're competing with two companies. You'll make 40000 bucks like in a week, but you got to compete with other companies. And I want 12 different versions <laughs> of a write a song we want 12 different versions we'll give you the words and the product and in in 48 hours we want to hear 12 songs recorded ready to go on air wow <laughs> and, you, and you had to bang it out and you're, it was just work you do it over and over and you just do it and do it and do it after a while I mean Vince and I could sit down we could write an album probably in the next two weeks and, and or then something after a while it just starts to come I remember um Hamilton, bass player from Aerosmith, he yeah. said once, he goes, the first two, uh, the first Aerosmith album, kind of like ours, it's usually a combination of like every tune you guys kind of jammed and played with over, you know, a, a lot of years. He goes, but then after you, you get a, if you get a big deal, you know, the second album or the third album, you're writing on the tour bus or in the studio itself. He goes, then that's when we learned to be, the quote he gave Mike was, uh, it was Toys in the Attitude. That's when we learned how to be record artists. The other one, you know, first album, you know, Mama Tin and all that, and Dream Eye. He goes, those are stuff we were just banging around, banging around, changing every night, jamming on it, gigging year after year. And he goes, Toys in the Attitude, we wrote in the studio. I mean, young bands go, huh? Usually you had everything written and prepared ahead of time, then you go into the studio. But... Metallica too a lot of bands a lot of songs are written you know we have a budget where you can kind of just hang and of course you know guys like Metallica and Molly Crue you know everybody has a 20, you know, 24 track studio in their homes yeah. all of them so you can do that too but yeah a lot of stuff is written the longer you're in it it's just like it's, any, it's like anything anybody does after a while it can just go and especially now with the equipment that is at everyone's disposal now. You know, any kid with a computer technically has a recording studio now if they want. And as as quickly as you can think it, you you can lay it down. Because the only instruments that you really can't sample these days is probably guitars and the vocal. Everything else, you know, you can lay down pretty quickly and just get the ideas out. And uh, it also has to be where your head's at at the time too. Yeah. You know, you have to keep a little, especially if you if with our style of music, you can't be too, you can't be too content. I don't think because there's got to be some, there's still got to be a little pain, a little torment, you know, a little self-loathing in there. That's where most of your best material comes from, anyway. 
<laughs> you know. Very true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm sorry, there's certain bands that are just too damn happy for themselves, and you can hear it. And that's why, you know, that's why young kids now, they listen to hip-hop. Because, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of hip-hops coming from the street. Yeah. Young kids that are pissed off, and that's how they're expressing themselves. They're, you know, the new rock stars now. That's true. That's the same concept. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. Well, when, when Platinum was getting started, I mean, was there a game plan in place? Did you guys sit down and say, you know, here's where we want to go, here's where we want to be, you know, we want to have this kind of look, we want to have this kind of sound, or was it more organic where, you know, you kind of got together with everybody, because you just came from different bands, you put people together. Did it come together in the studio when you guys were rehearsing, you know, like, this is who we are, or did you just, like, kind of say, here's what we have to be, and we need to get there? Um, It was actually just, it was just it was just Vince and I that said this is this is what we want to do and at the time we were kind of to a certain degree we were trying to model ourselves out of uh, after Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley where you know the ideas were pretty much you know the band concept was theirs and then they just had to find the right guys that were on board with that um, and everybody had to have some commonality because there was definitely some different musical uh, likes between everybody in the band but with where we were going it did fit with everybody I'll give you an example when we um, when we brought Mike Paradisus into the band uh, we had lost our original bass player because he wanted to uh, uh, he was being punished by the state of New Jersey so he had to go away for a little while (laughs) Uh, and we bring in Mike Paradisus and at the time you know, we were already established. We have post our entire rehearsal studio was plastered. The wallpaper from ceiling to floor was our full color bland house photos, posters. And it, it kind of had to be there, but it was uh, very colorful, very uh, over the top. He walks in, he goes, This, and he grew up with Kiss like I did. He goes, This is the band I wanted to be in my entire freaking life. I go, welcome aboard, Mikey. And yeah. off we go. You know, the, the, the same thing with Dean Ferriola. Um, now, Vince and I were, we always wanted to be heavier, where we had to kind of, we had to kind of acquiesce to everybody else too, because at the same time, two of the guys in the bands would have been more than happy and poisoned, to be really, really honest with it, or Firehouse, or danger danger or you know just you know a little more pop kind of thing but they were still fully down with where we were going because they're like and the way they would describe their band like you're we're anything from you know priest to maiden but we look like kiss or poison and they were totally down with that because the whole thing worked and you know everybody liked each other um it was a very very tight-knit group and everybody just kind of just fell on board but the, the whole the show the looks the idea that came from you know predominantly me and Vince and everybody was just we had to find the people that were, were down with that and uh, we were good to go I mean that's the reason why Vince and I split uh, apart from SS Steel even though we were all you know really really good friends and still are to this day is that you know they wanted to more they were going more the accept route and they wanted to keep it really stripped down you know more down and dirty and we just wanted to put on more of a show. Even though musically we weren't that far apart, ultimately. But again, we wanted to put on a show. I mean, we wanted to put on a real, real production. 
Yeah. And uh, and we and we did good for the budget we had. You know, we put on a hell of, you know, all the things we could never have gotten away with doing now. But it was nice. And the way the band progressed and musically, um, we, we did some, we, we, we were musically really able to go to a lot of really different areas. I mean, there was a lot of variety. We did an interview about half, about six, seven months ago uh, for the Italian with, uh, with Ali. And he just said, how do you go from a song like Do Ya which is one of the first songs we ever wrote, a real rock, you know, a little rah-rah. You know, yeah, a very kiss-oriented kiss song, yeah. You know, and then he goes, how do you go from that to a, a bonafide ripper like Freedom Fighters? I'm like, well, that's what happens. Your first album sometimes has songs that are six, seven, eight years, you know, apart. I mean, think about it. That's a long time for a yeah, band. a lot of changes. To, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, Christ, look at the Beatles in eight years. Yeah. You know, from, you know, I want to yeah. hold your hand. <laughs> you know the revolution. Yep. So, which is cool, but a lot of stuff too. We got to uh, on Vanitas. There's some really, really, really good stuff on there, especially um, lyric content-wise, where it could absolutely have been written yesterday with the political uh, connotations. But especially, I mean, right, right now, um, especially a song called um, "Casualty of War." Uh, if you have the if you have that album, I just read the lyrics. I mean, you're like, holy Christ! I mean, literally could have written it yesterday, and be getting spot on, spot on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, but, you know, uh, with with the two records, you know, now for people, and you're saying that you, there's, I don't know how much material you uncovered that you didn't even know you had lying around. Do you think you might, you know, work on it and re-release it? Yes, frankly, oh, yes. Right now, what we're what we're doing is we have a couple. We've got a few songs that um, sonically could go out as is. We have some stuff that was done with a, a four-track in our rehearsal studio. And it was basically like a four-track rehearsal practice. But I mean, the songs are there, and it captures the sound. We're, just, we're, just trying, we're kind of beating ourselves up because we've got also five songs that only exist right now, other than in our minds, uh, on a live video. And all of it, all those five songs are actually on YouTube right now, both in a full show and individually. Um, and there's something there, but we're also toying with the idea of taking, we have um, about 15 songs and just re-recording them and, and putting them out. Heaven and Hell is down with it. Part of us are kind of really intrigued by that idea. Um, Vince can still his voice is as good as ever yeah. even after all these years later and um, at the same time I don't know would would people want to hear a lesser quality recording from 83 as opposed to a re-recorded version of it you know 40 something years later what, do what you about think? both uh, well you know I, you know because a lot of that music was never heard by anybody, you know, they wouldn't know the difference between the original and the re-recorded. But why not put both out? You know, the original version as a bonus, and like the re-recorded version. I mean, I'm happy that you guys would even would get together to re-record it. Does that mean that there might possibly be like a platinum reunion uh, live? Uh, th there's always talk. There's always talk. Um, the main core of platinum are still geographically 
close enough to maybe make that happen. Yes, but you know we're all you know we're not we're not we're not kids anymore, Mike. <laughs> no, I know uh, that. <laughs> right there know, with you, not, I know. We're, we're not, I, I got a son that's going to college in a couple of months, and uh, and I, <laughs> and I was an old dad to start with, but uh, I know we're, we're not closing any doors. Let's put it that way. We're not going to close any doors. Well, we should keep. Uh, because I mean, the more I look, it seems like more and more of all the people that uh, you know we've known all these years, a lot of people are still out there, you know, kicking it. Yeah, um, yeah they're still doing it. Mike, Mike Paradisus, he's down. See, our, our 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 base player from you know our main productive years, he's down in Florida. He's semi-tired. He's playing in a couple of bands down there right now, and. Uh, He's in great shape. He looks great. He's having a great time. He's still playing out every week. God bless him. And um, same thing with our guitarist, Dean. Uh, Vince is dealing with, unfortunately, a bad case of uh, tinnitus, or tinnitus, however you pronounce it. So he's got to bring it in the ears. That's the only reason he didn't go on tour with the uh, the Wizards this past season, um, is because of that. And um, But for Platinum, well we would all kind of go that extra yard without a doubt right now. We're just trying to, uh, it's more of a logistic situation where if we can, uh, procure a low cost way to record this stuff where, you know, I had a company called hell's kitchen music. I had a recording studio in New York city for, you know, for over 20 years. Um, but I, I closed up shop 10 years ago. So I don't have the uh, the facility to do what I would nor- would have been easy to do ten years ago. So we're keeping an open mind. Is the original original bass player from Platinum that was with us for six years actually is building a studio? So that's kind of oh, okay. new news. He's actually building a studio for the entire intent of doing what I just described doing. Oh, very and nice. And if that comes together in the next uh, six months or so, um, yeah. And then, of course, then then we've opened up the box. And then, of course, now then no one's going to be able to get rid of us because then we just might just keep going and going and going. <laughs> well, that, for me, that's a good thing because I would love to – I can't wait to hear the new, the new song – well, the old new songs, you know, when they come out. But, you know, I, I just got a Hades question for you because I've had Alan Techie on the show many times who sang with Hades back oh, in the yeah. day. And, you yeah, know, no, I, I, I would, Alan, has, Alan has nothing nice to say about Dan Lorenzo. I'll just put it, I'll just put it that way. Now, was he a difficult person back then or did it come later on in the Hades, in the Hades story? I never, ever I, – I, the one thing I pride myself in, I'm, I'm 58 years old, Mike. I never make – I don't comment on anything like that ever. I was like, <laughs> how about those New York Knicks? I'm like – <laughs> I hear you. I get it. <laughs> not, not a problem. Uh, but was, was there any recordings? I mean, I know you said it was all covers, but were, were there any originals being worked on at that time, or was it just strictly no, as a cover Hades, band? Hades, no, when I, when I was playing with Dan uh, in Hades, uh, we were doing strictly copy at the time, and we were we were both still seniors in high school. But uh, they started doing originals, I mean, literally, like, the day I left. It was, it was that right at that pretty much of that moment. That had to be the we late seventies then. Hmm? This uh, no, it would have been 
eighty. Maybe eighty. Uh, that would have been eighty. That would have been early, early eighty-one. Okay. Maybe, even, maybe late eighty. Yep. Yes, wow. because uh, I'm trying to get my dates together because for a long time that video was Ray Gillen. Uh, that's on YouTube. We always had posted as eighty-two, and I just realized that 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 wasn't accurate. That was actually the video with me in Savage with Ray was October of 81 so it would have been I was it would have been actually winter spring of 81 now it's the very beginning of Hades okay it's amazing how like you know 30 40 years ago we could have told you a date and a time right off the top of our head like that now today we can't remember anything it's insane isn't it <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it was an old movie remember the movie on Golden Pond yep Henry uh, uh, Fonda James He's Palmer. like, what do you mean you never read Treasure Island? <laughs> Just, you ever read it? Oh yeah, but my mind's going, so it'll all be the, it'll all be new to me. No, <laughs> that's <laughs> the best way to explain it. <laughs> Absolutely. My son's like, Dad, you're gonna watch it. I'm like, I, I, yeah, I saw the movie three times. He goes, Well, what happens next? I'm like, I don't remember. This is great. I get to watch it over and over again, and it's all new to me. Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. No, but as Ozzy, as Ozzy used to say, you, you know, he's had a hell of a life. Be really nice if you could remember a lot of it, because now we're all—we are definitely all guilty of that. That is yeah. without a doubt, because there's just so much. I mean, even some of the stuff that we've unearthed. I'm like, oh, I mean, how could we have forgotten that song? Oh my god, and so on and so. But there's still one more song that we're trying to find uh, a recording of. But even I'm—I'm I'm excited as hell, Mike, because. The very, very first song that we ever recorded ever was found in that last bunch from three, four months ago. I'm like, wow, holy mother. Do you <laughs> think there's any more stuff? Uh, of, of, the, of the cassette that we found with a bunch of that unreleased, un, unremembered horror unremembered. stuff that we found. Was, yeah, unremembered. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so the, between the unremembered, the remembered, and yeah, was, we're really down to like there's a song we did called Framed. It's the only metal song that I know uh, where it's a duet. The entire song, the entire vocal is a duet. I've never heard of that before or since. Um, what the only regrets I have on some of the older stuff is that just like anything, you know, they say familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're playing, or, or like, you know, I remember the one Joe Perry said back back in 82, he never wanted to play Dream On ever again. <laughs> I think every time he's played it from 82 to now. Think about that. But, you know, if you're doing stuff over and over again, it just gets, it's stale to you. But I'm going, how, there's three songs in particular. I'm like, how did we leave those off the album? But uh, that's human nature. You know, things just get sour to you. And you're just always more excited about the new stuff you've just done. But I'll tell you one thing, though. The only thing I uh, fear, but I'm a little cautious of, is if we do start recording, I'm like, the music producer that I am, why am I recording 40-year-old songs when I'm in the mode now? Let's start doing new, let's start doing new stuff. That would probably be, you know, <laughs> it's going to be very, very different because the one thing... I prided uh, most in platinum is that we we never stayed still. I mean, we were the music did 
continuously evolve and evolve and evolve. And for people that either are or are not familiar with us, if you listen to both albums that are out now from beginning to end, you see the journey, so to speak. There was a, a, a review we got out of Spain about a year ago. They said, you know, the Vanitas album probably would have put these guys over the top. And he goes, it's, it's definitely evolved, but I like the way he phrased it. He goes, but you still recognize the band. I thought that was really well stated. The music yeah. evolved, but you still recognize the band. Well, I think that's the important thing, that a band does sound the same to an extent, but it has to move on. I mean, what do you think, you know, Platinum would sound like today if you did start writing and recording? Compare it to the first record or what would have been the second record, you know, and the material that you found. What do you think the band would sound like today? How similar to that older version of the band? I'm not sure anymore. If you asked me two years ago, I probably would have had a quick answer for you. I'm not entirely sure now because... For instance, like, you know, and I love Iron Maiden, but if Iron Maiden comes out with a new album, it's going to sound like Iron Maiden. Yep. It's going to sound like Iron Maiden. It's going to, and Iron Maiden could have, whatever they write today, they could have written 40 years ago. It's, sure. it's, that's their thing. ACDC, too. Same thing. You know, it's them. And they don't, they didn't try to evolve. They just try to keep writing good songs. That's it. I was going to say that. Do you think it? But do you think it gets kind of formulaic? Because, like it says, they didn't want to evolve. They want to give the fans what they're expecting time and time again. But as an artist, I mean, doesn't that kind of like not sit right with you that you can't? I like you know, Steve Harris has another band that he does, so he can do something a little different. And the other guys have their projects and do different do. stuff. I, you know? I, I think you just nailed it. I think that's how they solve that problem. They do their side projects, and they and probably a lawyer, a business manager, an accountant goes, listen. This is what they want. Give them what they want. And if you really have this creative need to go express yourself, um, go do a side act and, and do it. And that's probably how they kind of come to a, you know, a happy compromise, most likely. Platinum, we didn't have to do that. We, just, we didn't mind experimenting with sounds and just keep going and going and going. Because we were, we were in a really, right before the band uh, stopped, I mean, probably the 12 months prior to that, 18 months prior to that, was probably our most creative uh, time. And I, what I'm more also curious about is where we would have gone if we were just around another two, three years. Because we were really starting to go in some really cool kind of areas. I mean, I would, I would have probably say a cross between Pantera meets Ramstein with... Uh, more operatic vocals. Well, that's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, some sort of blend, something like that, because uh, it could have been cool. Because, you know, we, Vince and I, you know, we wanted to be heavier and heavier and heavier, but within a, a genre with, you know, an extremely polished uh, vocalist. You know, yeah. I mean, let's say back in the day, remember when metal early and how bands like Metallica and Slayer kind of formed in the beginning is because people were bands were tired of waiting for that great, you know, the next Rob Halford or David Lee Roth or Bruce Dickinson to walk into the room. You know, because people with those kind of vocal ranges didn't grow on trees. So finally said, you know, screw it, you know, I'll do it. Seek and destroy, and off we go. They're like, we don't, we don't all have to be, you know, the greatest, you know, 
four or five octave range singers and off they go you know i i'm a big believer that's kind of what spawned that to a certain degree and at the same time now you know what's old is new again and it'll be nice to have uh how far we could have pushed that does that make sense yeah no absolutely yeah you know just but also trying to create something new at the same time and um we were do- We started to really start exploring and doing that, um, at least on some of the songs like Vanitas. There was a song called like The Cool Fire, um, which lyrically I'm just still, I wish it was out there today. Um, and Casualty of War and songs like that. Um, heavy message, but still with a little bit of that polish of a classic U.S. power metal band of the 80s, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. You know, Don, if, you know, when the band ended after like 10 years or so, it was probably a little bit more than that, I mean, was it hard to let it go and move on to something else, or did you feel at that point, thank God it's over? I mean, you know, I, I, you know, we couldn't deal with this no more. Dude, it was, I don't remember the day it stopped. Just, it, it wasn't, there wasn't, we're ending the band today. There was never that moment. It kind of, uh, you know, it kind of just faded out because, you know, the singer was also um, the family has a construction company business. You know, they uh, they build homes, and you know there was everybody had, you know, also day jobs that were that took a lot of the time. I was still in the music biz. My guitarist at the time actually started working for me in my commercial music world, and we just got kind of busy. With me, at first, I was still making music. Actually, I started making more music than ever before for the next 20 years after that. So that kind of eased the pain. Yet at the same time, now we we kind of have that little, what would you call it, that little uh, stone in my shoe ever since. I missed the hell out of it. We missed it almost immediately. The band actually did get back together for one show at SIR in, uh, in New York in, um, in 19, December of 1999. Yeah. Like a little reunion. And uh oh, missed it to death. And I still and I still do. I mean it's just a, there's a there's a there's an empty hole, without a doubt. Without a doubt at all. But when it first happened, I guess the best answer is it was just more of a fade, like we just yeah, we'll get you know, we'll let you know in the next practices or when we're gonna come to the studio lay down some new tracks. And we'd still talk to each other about other things, but you know that next rehearsal just didn't happen, and there was no next new show. And the the Atlantic uh, record deal uh, fall through just kind of, you know, it just definitely took a little air out of our sails. And it's one of these things where you give it a certain amount of time. You know, we were all now getting into our you know late twenties at that time, and then. You know, we kind of saw the writing on the wall just from a business standpoint that, you know, we're just not going to stop our lives just to play music into our, you know, 30s and 40s without being able to make a career out of it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it kind of uh, sadly just kind of faded away. But the funny thing is uh, the timing now with everything that's happened in the last two years, uh, it's been awesome. Because now every every song every song that Platinum ever recorded uh, is now on YouTube. Either we want to do some uh, archiving, 
just in case, you know, for no other reason. You know, I want my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren, if they want to, to just pick up their phone or whatever they're using, you know, 80 years from now and just pop up any track that Platinum ever did and be able to hear it on YouTube, including a live show that we found in its entirety, which we put up on YouTube. It's a full show. Full show. Include, I'm doing from the road crew coming in, setting up the stage, a couple of seconds of that, to our full info, which uh, that still survives because we used to always play um, – there's a track that I just always liked. And part of the things that I do away from platinum is I'm also, I do like orchestral scoring. Again, the kind of music that you'd hear before, like a movie trailer kind of stuff. And there was a track done for the soundtrack for Conan the Barbarian, the original movie. And it was their like battle scene music. And we always started our shows with that theme. And in the live platinum show, we even saved that, that we have one show where you actually saw the, the whole thing from the intro to the whole nine yards. It was really a lot of fun. That's pretty and, cool. Uh, it's even, even though the, you know, the quality is, you know, it's 40 year old VCR footage. That's amazing. It survived. Not there's any color or anything left to it, but uh, it's great. There's a lot of young kids going, this stuff is cool. Yeah. Because it's supposed to look, it's supposed to look a little gritty, a little edgy, you know, it's it's what's expected. I mean, think about it. You know, if it was 1989 and we're talking about something 45, 40 years old, it's like finding an old video from big bands from the 40s. It's true, but that was high. That was high. VHS was high quality back then. Today, look what you could do with a telephone. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, who the hell would have thought that would have came around? It's crazy. Oh, and uh, and and some of the stuff that you know, just with you know, mastering techniques. There's a song we did called "Hold Me." It was a Great. It was just, it was a great track, catchy, and still, you know, commercially viable. You know, Hold Me Tonight. I mean, you know, it was just another get laid 80s metal song. But it's a good track. And from a VCR handheld condenser mic in a balcony, it still, it sounds, it sounds great. So we put that on YouTube. So anybody that knew, saw any platinum song that was recorded at least off of most of the Iceman stuff, there's a video of it. I was live performing it and just a version of each song in some format or another on YouTube, even if it's just a still photo. But, you know, there's a couple of vids. There's a couple of uh, ones the label had put out there. But there's just about and just about everything. What we were talking about before with the new stuff we might re-record or not, the least we'll do is all the old recordings even if they're a little, you know, snotty and gritty, we're going to put them on YouTube eventually, no matter what. So it's not lost because, again, I still think there's something to that sound, no matter how, you know, bootlegged a recording it might be. It's still you're, you're looking into the past through like a little peephole, you know, through the time barriers, and uh, there's something to be said for that. I think. Oh, so true. Hey, Don, I could talk to you forever, and I wish I could, but I have another guest waiting to come on, and he's he's an Italian guy from New York, and I'll kick my ass if I make him wait any longer. But I could, I'm glad that there's new material that's going to come out, and when it does, let's do this again. We'll pick up where we left off, and we'll keep the stories going. You're an amazing guy to talk to, and I had such a good time you know, reliving all those stories. No, it's just amazing. Really, really appreciate coming on the show, Mike, uh, and likewise, you were great to talk to, and um yeah, anytime. I'm there whenever you need me. Just give me a holler, and uh, we'll stay in touch. You guys, I will. Have a great day. Take care, my friend, and thanks for all the great music. Thank you, Mike. You have a great night.
Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's get on some more platinum. We'll get to Billy Graziati in about 15 minutes or so. How about we? what we did so that there was pause, so let's do Blind Lead the Blind.
Alright, we had to get a little sabotage with the anniversary of Chris Oliva's death. What a great band, great song, and an amazing guitar player who left us way, way, way too early. Alright, we're going to get to Billy in about 10 minutes. Uh, our roving reporter, John, wanted to announce that Steve Giorgio is the one who played bass on the new Megadeth record. It's all over Blabbermouth now, but he got that breaking news a little while ago. But unfortunately, the show airs on Sunday, and most of the news is already out there by then. Well, there's not much else really going on this week. I mean, I heard Skid Row in an interview saying that, you know, they met their new lead singer for the first time four days before his first show with the band in Vegas. And maybe that's why Skid Row has problems with their singers, because they hire these people from overseas that they don't know or meet until right before a show. Maybe it's better to get somebody locally you can hang out with and see if they're a good fit for the band. I guarantee you, this time next year... He will not be in the band. I can almost guarantee it. If, uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I doubt it. He will not be in the band by this time next year. All right. How about we uh, play something off the new Billy bio, talk to Billy, play another song, and then we'll wrap it up because we're running late tonight. So uh, let's see. Let's dig up a track off the new record. All right. Here you go. We will play. Let me get the first one up here. We'll do Blackout, and then we'll get Billy on right after that. Here you go.
What's going on? Uh, fucking uh, doing it, man. <laughs> hey, I hear you. It's good to talk with you, man. I have to tell you. you. Another fucking release. And I'm talking about it. <laughs> I know. Hey, but that's a good thing, no? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Great. Listen, I love talking about it. Well, you should, because I have to tell you, I put this record on, I mean, the first one I thought was amazing. I put this on, Blackout, the first song comes on, and I felt like I was going back to CBGB's in 1985. I mean, it was like being in a time machine, and, and people take that offensively sometimes, because I think, oh, I'm writing dated music, outdated music, but no. You just took everything you've done, I felt, over the last 30 years, threw it into this album, and you hit the mark on every single song. Fuck yeah, bro. <laughs> what a great fucking way to wake up to. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's early out in California. <laughs> hey, it's not early out. It was a late night for me. Fucking been uh, burned the candle at both ends. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear yeah. you. But I, I'm, I'm glad that you put this album out, man. I mean, how do you feel about it? I'm, I'm psyched, bro. It's fucking, um, you know, I, I, I still love doing what I do. Um, Somebody, it was funny, somebody posted, late last night, I saw a tweet from a guy's Life Agony, and they, they, they posted a show that we're playing together in, in Europe, and somebody said, a bunch of, a bunch of old guys in bands <laughs> doing it just for the money, and I, <laughs> my response was, you can make money at this? <laughs> so, that, that's the thing, man, I, I you know, you, you, it's a different era than it was when Biohazard was coming up. Um, but I never started it for any other reason than just the, the love of the music. And and this is what I fucking love to do. I, it, there's no, um, you know, you don't, you, it, it's not even like a possibility to make it as a living unless you're like top dog these days. But my thing is, it's, I realized that my whole fucking life is a giant piece of art. Like, and like all the biohazard was and still is a t big chapter going on in my life. Um, Billy Bio, Suicide City, all these different bands. But I, I think Suicide City with, uh, in, in in like Power Flow, Suicide City is an obvious chapter. But but Billy Bio has like a, it's more like an umbrella. Like like it, it, that is kind of like it, this is a, the, all these other things are parts of me. And Billy Bio is like. A, Maybe, you know, some of all the parts, like you said, like you, you feel like I hit the nail on the head with everything. But it, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 you like metal, it's, it's metal. You like hardcore, it's hardcore. You like punk rock, it's got all the punk rock influences. And then, uh, and then all the hip hop groove that I, I and the bounce is it's always there. So <clears throat> musically, lyrically, it's, uh, you know, it's a heavier record lyrically. I, I, I touched on things and, I always kind of pull punches a little bit with like personal shit. <clears throat> Politically, I never hold back, but um, this record, I, I I go a little deeper and talk about things uh, that I haven't really talked about in the past. It's truly amazing from start to finish, lyrically, musically. I mean, I, I get what you're saying about you know Biohazard being a big part of your life. You know, you got Power Flow. There's so many things going on, but in the end, is it really worth going back into a? Um like a band environment where three or four or five guys all have equal says and it's a bit of just doing what you're doing on your own and putting biohazard behind you. I know it's technically not broken up, but it's kind of been inactive for a long time. Is this the way to go, just sticking with the Billy Bio stuff? Well, you know, you know what I like, bro? That every record of every band I ever liked, it was the second record that really 
fucking grabbed my attention. It's the one that, you know, you, you make the first record and you're like, yeah, cool. You know, we, we put these songs together over a bunch of time and we don't really know each other too well. But then you go on a fucking van, you go on tour and you spend all the time playing those songs, playing, you know, being close with each other, playing every night. And the second record is like the result of that relationship and that kind of like culmination of like, it's like you really cut your teeth the meat potatoes and what you're really fucking made of comes out in the second record for biohazard was urban discipline you know and, and for me to 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 be here on my second record it's the same it's it's i feel like you know the first one I, you know i i even like you know the guys like the drummer who played in the first record didn't you know wasn't even around to play you know to tour the record but so for, we all been on tour together um i'm tighter with the guys they all know how I feel. I feel like, um, you know, you have your whole life kind of to make your first record, even though I've been doing this for a while. But then the second record, you, you only got like a, a year or so, you know? So I, I feel that um, it's to, it's not like I, I, it's not like I don't like the way a band works. I, I, I get it. It's some of, you know, the, the holes, some of the parts. And, and we, even though like I'm a songwriter, I you know I would bring in songs like Punishment or fucking Shades of Grey or Tales from Hearts all these Biohazard songs where they were finished versions like actually recorded demos and um, and then we would put it through what we call the a, like a meat grinder the Biohazard meat grinder where everybody would we would jam it and everybody would add their two cents but and and that's what made us us that 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 was made you know what made Biohazard Biohazard and but I think if I Wouldn't have had the same sound. It wouldn't had been like a biohazard song, and we we talked about that collective as a band. But <laughs> I always looked at it like I was a, a solo. You know, would you wait twenty five years to make a solo record for? And I'd be like, you know what? I kind of always been a solo guy, you know, solo record, solo artist. It's like in a painting on the wall, hanging on the wall. Invite your buddies over, give them a bunch of beers and paintbrushes and paint, and say, "Go ahead, change what you want to change." You, you know, I, I, when it's a collective band work, like Byron, for example, I, I dig it, and I wouldn't change it for the fucking world. But with what I do now, it's kind of like that vision I have in my head stays pure. Nobody, you know what I mean? Nobody alters it because they want to or because they can. And I, I, I fucking love that. Um, I won't change or try to change out of that how biohazard works but I really fucking love what I'm doing with Billy Bio yeah it shows in all the music and like you were saying earlier you know if you're into metal this is metal if you're into hardcore it's hardcore you know coming from New York and I know you're from New York you know we both come from Brooklyn we're from this area you know we grew up in the 70s and 80s over here where all the music we got into was sort of new and underground metal was new punk was just starting out here you had hardcore then the crossover came in the mid 80s 
know, we had we had you know rap up in the Bronx and in Queens, and we kind of got into all of that because it was music that I think that nobody else was into at the time. And to us, we looked at it all equally and the same. But you'll have people that'll say, you know, I can tolerate the hardcore, you know, with the metal because it's like crossover to me. But I don't get the rap. Rap don't belong in there. Hip hop influences don't belong in there. But you make it work in everything you do when you include that. And I think a lot of people might feel that way because you know Anthrax took it and they made a joke out of it, in my opinion. And it was like a goofy song where you incorporate all the rhythms and sounds of these genres and make it work together. Yeah. It- it's not. We never call ourselves a hip hop. There's a lot of parallels to me between like punk rock, hardcore, and and, and hip hop. Um, you know, on a street level, and it, you just it's just writing writing about issues that affect you individually and collectively as a whole. Um, you know, as a community. And I I fucking love that. I get it. Um, you know, being influenced by fucking Run DMC. I was just talking to Run, uh, DMC yesterday, but. Um, Beastie Boys, fucking, you know, even um, Ice-T, I remember listening to Ice-T fucking back in the early Biohazard days, and he came out with a record called Power, we were like, holy fuck, yeah. fucking amazing, but the the aggression of fucking metal and hardcore and punk rock, and that, you know, take no shit fucking attitude, I always gravity to, I love, it's, it's something that I just feel, you know, it's the underground, you know, and we all kind of, you know, were magnetized to the underground and kind of, you know, realized that the, the people that we were friends with really, really didn't fucking gel with. But the undergrounds gave us this family thing that that that's the reason why we still are a part of the underground and the, the, the scene. Um, a lot of people ask me too, like, what do you think about the scene? You've been around for such a long time. Like, is it? Uh, it kind of sucks to see it change so much. Like, it doesn't change. It, 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 it's the same with the same awesome shit that attracted you the first time and me the first time is the same shit that attracts the, 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 the kid who's just going to his first show and and that family vibe that that, that new music that that you're like being a part of something that's new and different and exciting is always the fucking same and it'll always be like that and so the, to me the scene has been the same in, since 88, 98, 2008, and, and 2018, um, in 2028, it's going to be the same. It, it's, it's, we all kind of change a little bit. We grow and we, we get, we're into new different things. You know, how awesome the fucking cyclone was to ride the first time, you know, when you've ridden it your whole life, you know, you forget what that first feeling was. Hello? Yeah, I watched it for a second, Bill. You're back. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I you know. know what yeah, with the cyclone, that, I know exactly what you're saying. But some people are kind of stuck in like one frame of mind and in one place. You know, like when you get into a band and you know, for the first time when you're a kid, you're right. You're not thinking about making money. You're not ma- if you want, you're in it for the wrong reasons. But eventually, it does become a career for you, and you can, like it says, make money out. Maybe not like you know, priest or maiden or Metallica type money, but you can make a career out of it. Where it's enough to support you and carry on and on writing music. Did it ever get to that point with you where you said, you know what, I think I could do this, you know, for the rest of my life and live off of what I'm doing? Yeah, dude. I, I, it was a point where. We were, um, I remember Biohaz, we were getting fucking paychecks, $250 a week, and I called my old man up, and I said, Pop, I made it. I, I can live off my music. And he says, wow, awesome. What, what, you know, what are you pulling in? I'm like, we're getting 250 a week. And he kind of, 
laughed and I, I, I chuckled and I was like, well, you know, don't laugh at that. It's, it's, it's my money. We're working hard and we're fucking doing it because it's awesome. And I'm, I'm proud of you, but you know, you, you just got to live within your means and, and that shit wrong in my head. So I guess making a living, it was never the focus and you can, you can do this for a living. I've done it for a living. When I say a living is meaning for my life. I, I, I'm a fucking lifer. I'll, I'll do this to the grave. My, my whole fucking life has become this one self-expression, but, um, you know, you, I, you have side hustles. You gotta have side hustles no matter what you do. Like you can get a job, you know, working for fucking private sanitation. And if it's not cutting your nut, then you gotta find something else to do, you know, to, to, to fill those gaps. And I've always been able to find those things that was lucky enough to, you know, to invest in a recording studio. And, and that's what I, I do for a living besides music. It's still music, but I love working with other new up and coming artists and producing bands. And now I even write more for bands. But that, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to have found a niche all within music. Um, unfortunately, you know, COVID shut down uh, <laughs> fucking music and like motherfuckers in, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of things. But uh, we, we got hit pretty bad. But, you know, it's not. The saying is, get that, knock down nine, stand up ten, you know? <laughs> That's so true. I mean, it looks like, I, I, mean, I said this last year, too, like things are picking up again and bands are going back out on tour, and then it all came crashing down again, you know? And But it looks like it's starting up again. Now you have, like, bands that have been sitting around for two years, just like, you know, waiting to get out there, and now everybody's getting out there at the same time. They're all putting out music. Some bands were holding on to music for the last couple of years, waiting for the right time. It's, it's like, now it's like a lot of shit coming out at one time, you know? Yeah, dude. I I, uh, I wouldn't say I was holding on to it, but you know, it it, it you gotta just eventually just move on, and, and it is what it is. I was super prolific during the pandemic. You know, I, I did a there's a new besides my the new Leaders and Liars record. There's a new Power Flow. It's almost done. Um, I I wrote and produced a new Cutthroat record that's coming out this year. It's fucking killer. New Count Time. New Della Die. J Theory. Um, fractures. It's like a lot. Life. Um, uh, Yard of Blondes. A lot of a lot of uh, a lot of music. But the, the Billy Bio. It took um, because there was no rush. It, I was just kept. I, I'm always writing, and there came a point where suddenly all the songs just you know magnetized together and said, "Yo, I'm fucking leaders and liars. This is this is the record," and it just jumped off the page, and uh, and, and kind of wrote itself. But there's always these songs that I'm, you know, I'm working on, and, and it, I don't stop to write a record. I'm just always creating, and there comes a point where, like I said, songs kind of just write it, write its own tale. Um, but that took a little longer, and not a little longer, but there was there was nothing to do. There's no, label, you know, my label wasn't putting music out. There was no touring, um, and then that's the, the minute I put it all together, and and it, it kind of jumped off the page. Like I said, I, you know, I get it all together. And delivered to the label, we put a, um, someone fucking put up my music, fucking the, uh, you know, like leaked it before I was I announced it, which was fucking hustle to try to navigate. And then we, um, and then I had two world tours canceled, and so it's kind of like you know, like I said, you got to roll with the punches. And uh, I'm trying to do another tour for late summer, and we'll see if that happens. Now we got the the, the fucking crap war with Putin and, and yeah. Ukraine. 
but we'll see how that works. You know? Yeah, hopefully it'll happen. Is songwriting something that comes relatively easy to you, or was it something that you really had to work hard on? Um, it, it comes easy. Not easier as the more practice you get. But um, it, it's just it's it's almost like um, you know, it's therapy sense. I I, I forget every fucking piece of shit crap thing that's on my fucking shoulders and all the good shit that's on my 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 head and i and i escape the world um and just focus on what i'm doing and and time flies like that i got a call last night my wife's like it's like 10 o'clock it's like what are you doing where are you said i'm in the studio and i'm like holy fuck it's 10 o'clock it was like fucking five o'clock five minutes ago and in you it just it's a it's a a great outlet for me there's a few things I found in my life to help keep me balanced, but uh, the, the writing and being in the studio uh, has always been an escape for me, and it, it's kept me alive and, and young for a fucking long time. Yeah. Well, for people that listen to your music and know you, uh, they know that you know your taste runs all over the place, and it always shows in what you're writing. I mean, are you always willing and still open today to experiment with new things, or you kind of like say, you know, this is my audience, and I, I have the gear when I write towards these people, you know, whether it's Billy Bio fans, Biohazard fans, Powerflow fans, or is it just, hey, you know, I'm me, I'm going to write how I write, and, you know, these people are going to have to come along for the ride? Yeah, I, I don't, my, it's, it's kind of like, um, I don't have any preconceptions of what I want to do. I just, I just write. And I don't worry about, is this song going to, you know, I'm going to write a Biohazard song, I'm going to write a Powerflow song. There's, I don't sit down and say, yeah, it's not Biohazard enough, and throw it out. I just let it flow. And, and and it becomes a song, um, and then like I said a little while ago, it's kind of like there, there's a moment which I I fucking love the moment when this happens, but suddenly this picture starts to form, and the songs kind of mag certain songs magnetize together and paint this picture. So I, I don't I don't worry about a direction. I don't worry about a style. I like everything, you know. Piano is my fucking first instrument. So um, everything in between, and um, and you know, up and down and all around. That's I, I love it all. In life, taking the it's life is not always great. It's not always fucking shitty. It's ups and downs, and, and like I said, it spins around. And I'm, I like the records that I make to kind of emulate life like that. You know, I, I always did it. Bobby and I did a lot of um, acoustic, more interludes with Biohazard. I played a lot of piano. People fucking shut me down for it. Like you can't play piano in a hardcore record. I'm like fuck you, it's fucking hardcore. That's what that's what hardcore is. Just you do what you want to do. And to me, um, I like how the world around me is filled with all these different pitfalls and ups and downs. And my music, I want to do the same. Not just within the song, because I love the dynamics, fast and slow and heavy and, and, and hard and uh, and and just fucking dismal and uplifting but also in between the songs is a different thing and and like a lot of my records um leaders liars has is filled with those kind of moments that emulate life more yeah you know there was a time in the 80s where bands kind of looked out for each other you became friends with other bands and you try to hook each other up with shows and, and do things together it was a, it was a community i guess is the the way of saying it do you still feel that that's like that today do you think like you're responsible like maybe to help an up-and-coming band that you you know see interest in and help move them along it's different than it was back then because it was more where the bands kind of ran everything where today there's a lot of other hands involved in it but do you feel like you know you have to pay for with like the, the next groups coming up on the 
Well, I always have to me, and it's not just the music. You know, I'm a, I'm a helping hand kind of dude. I'm, I'm always connecting people with, you know, I see angles like somebody's got this business and I know somebody who's got this business and they, two friends can benefit. I'm like, yo, you should talk to Homeboy. He's got this going on and I think both of you guys could help each other. Um, bands, of course, it's hands down. Biohazard, we were always bringing up bands. We Besides bands like Creator, we didn't really have anybody who looked out for us um, and, and helped us out. So we... You know, I don't think we were imitating by you know having a model that did that for us. But I always look out for bands. I always try to, you know, give you know whether it's advice or, or connections or help. You know, especially when I produce you and I'm with you in, in the studio every day, I'm passing on my knowledge and my help and guidance to you. Um, but you know, like Cutthroat, for example, my homeboys here in LA, I took them on tour a bunch of times. I got them on the last Persistence tour, which was massive. I got my friends in, in Count Time, who I produced on the last Persistence tour in Europe, biggest tour that the dudes ever dreamed of doing, you know, and they fucking loved it. It turned out to be the last tour any of us did, but uh, it was a great opportunity. And and I'll continue to do that, you know, and it's not for a return. I'm not trying to, it's not like I help people out to try to get something back. It's just, you know, like, you know, you're a kid, you know, I grew up, you know, Irish, Italian, Catholic, and, you know, you learn do unto others, as you'd want them to do on you, but I think the best way is just do the right thing for other people, just because it's the right thing to do. That's it. True. Was there ever like a really bad downtime musically where you thought about just throwing in the <laughs> towel and giving it up? I sound like a fucking monk. Right? I see the shit I say. I'm like, it's really how I feel, man. It's no, it's honest. cool. It's authentic, but uh, you know, when I talk to you from New York, I always get the vibe that they're in the back going, "He's some full shit, dude." If I get all you want to do is like you know anyways but do do I ever what did you ever come across a time in all these years where you said I can't do this anymore it's not working out I, you know maybe just mentally physically where you wanted to just throw in a towel and give up music completely nope I uh I, I you know I, I'll sell paper clips to put you know put food on the table for my kids um but music is is such a big part of my life it's it's I don't even see it's a part of my life it is my life and I just find, you know, in times of ups and downs, I just find ways to make it work. It's easy to fucking win the lottery and celebrate and spend all your money, but it's how you win the lottery, lose the ticket, and turn that into a, a, a winning, you know, situation. That's the challenge, and, and I, I love challenges. Yeah, well, I, I, Billy, I'm not going to keep you, man. What an amazing job at Leaders and Lies. March 25th, the official release date on AFM Records. Is there anything coming up immediately that's guaranteed or definite, or are you still kind of like feeling out where things are going to go, like with tours and stuff? There's a bunch of tours I'm up for and, and, and um, a couple headline things I'm doing. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it when it's a solid thing because I got excited about these last two tours that got canceled and announced them, and, it, and it, it's like it pulls the wind out of your sails. I'm, I'm a type of dude who likes to tell you what I what I did, not what I'm going to do, you know? Yeah, I hear that. Especially these days, you know, you never know what, 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 any, what, what twists and turns uh, Fauci brings to us. You know? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, I hope you make your way back to the New York area. It'd be good to see you over here again. Yeah, dude, I miss her. I miss home a lot. And my, my daughter just went out to check it out and fucking... She sent pictures of Lenny. And I said, she goes, where should I go? I said, go here, go here, go here. And she starts sending me pictures of all these landmarks. You know, and I was like, oh, man, I should be there with you. 
Yeah, but, you should be. It's like the Wild West over here now. Yeah, I hear, man. I, like, I, I was. She was telling me, "What's it like?" I said, "I, I hear it's way worse than I grew up." When I grew up, it was pretty fucking rough. Yeah. But uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I kind of tried to paint that. You, you know how to handle yourself. You know, don't look for trouble. Mind your own business and be you, and you'll be fine. That's and it. She was. All right, I'm gonna yeah. get back safe. So, Billy, take care, man. It was great talking to you again. I can't wait to see you in New York. Thanks, Mike. And hey, send me a link or anything to share, and I, I'd love to, uh, um, you know, bring some shine some light. That's about it. We're going to wrap things up here tonight. I want to thank Don and Billy for being on tonight's show. Had a great time talking with the both of them. Hey, who do we got next week? Next week, Freddie Wolf from Evil is our guest. And I know we're lining up another artist right now. I just have to confirm it this week to make sure. So we'll see you guys next week. We know we got Freddie Wolf on the show. How about we close things out with uh, some Oz? Fire in the brain. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. I'll see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.
Have you ever been bullied? Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been intimidated for your beliefs? So was Jesus. He gets us, all of us. Visit hegetsus.com. College basketball fans, join the action on the court during the biggest tournament of the year with DraftKings Sportsbook. Turn your team's victory into your own big win. New customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. Yep, it's that simple. If they win, you win. DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also bet on college hoops with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code IHEART. Bet $5 on any college hoops team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. That's code IHEART. This week at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 and over and physically present in New York. Eligibility restrictions apply. Minimum $5 deposit. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for full details. Gambling problem? Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.